Hi, my name is Lords, and um, I'm recovering from an eating disorder, um, sex and love addiction, uh, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, avoidant personality style, depression, the laundry list. Um, I am 45 years old. I live in New York City, and I was born and raised here. Although my family moved to France, to Paris, when I was 15, uh, and then I came back for college when I was uh, 18. So what we used to be like, what happened, and what we were like now, when I was, um, when I was born, um, I was born to two very high-achieving people. And um, they loved me the way they could. But um, their idea of having a child, I f think, was more like, um, I was more like an accessory than really um, what I now think a child is. Meaning that um, as long as I was what they wanted me to be, things were fine. But if I deviated from what they thought um, a child should be, then that was when some problems would come up. So when I was two or so, I started, you know, being a typical toddler, saying no, and um, and they didn't like that. And I used to throw tantrums. I remember throwing tantrums where I'd um, fling myself on the ground and be kicking and screaming. And uh, I remember thinking there must be a better way for a child to communicate with her parents. Um, and I had a thought then that, and I, I really remember this. I remember making a little pact with myself when I have children, I will never say no to them, <laughs> which later when I did have kids, I have two kids now, I had to like consciously undo that pact because of course, it's not appropriate. <laughs> like boundaries are important. But um, but I just remember knowing that I would have kids and that I would do it differently from the way my parents did it. Anyway, um, when I was three or four or so, um, my parents decided that when I disobeyed, um, beating me with a belt uh, on the butt was... Uh, an appropriate way to discipline me for being disrespectful. And that happened three times. And um, it was um, painful, but I think it was emotionally painful. I don't remember the physical pain. I remember just like the fear and the, um, the sort of, shame and um yeah i just remember that that it was very sort of it just felt bad um and and you know with a lot of work now i'm like okay like is it really possible for a 3 year old to be disrespectful like that's not a 3 year old is being a 3 year old and the adult can decide whether it's disrespectful or not but um, anyway, that was a part of 
I think the beginning of um, an internal struggle for me. Um, the other thing was that my mother decided that the way to get me to do what she wanted me to do was to tell me that I was bad. And um, so if I wasn't, I don't know, I can't even think of things that that warranted this this kind of um, mental control, but but it stuck. So I remember um, just believing that I was bad. The other thing I believed was that um, precocious, I, they kept calling me precocious. Oh, she's so precocious. And I thought that meant obnoxious. Like I thought that that, I thought they were synonyms until, um, until like, I guess call it high school when I started studying for the SATs. Um, okay. So basically that was that I was, when I look back on it, I was just like, you know, a healthy child. Um, but, uh, the parents that I had, the way that they saw children was not, it didn't fit. And so I had to conform to what fit for them otherwise be beaten. And even though that only happened three times, it sort of formed a, um, like, like they only needed to do it three times. It's like the idea of, you know, the horse that is tethered to a stake when it's very young and it pulls away and pulls away, but it can't get away. And soon you don't need to keep the tether anymore because the, the horse believes that it's tethered. And so then you can take off the tether and it won't run away. I don't know if that's a true story because I've never, um, I've never tamed horses, but it resonates for me in terms of how I was controlled as a child. So, um, once I was about, oh, six or so, then my new strategy was lying when I wanted to do something and, um, they didn't, uh, let me do it. And then, you know, but that just contributed to the I'm bad concept that like, I'm bad for lying and shouldn't lie to mommy. And, um, and the way I look at that now is that like, I was just trying to live, like just trying to, you know, do life the way I want to do it. And lying seemed like, I just didn't want them to be upset, but obviously they did get upset about it. Um, and so now with my children, I try not to put them in circumstances where they have to lie to me in order to be true to themselves. Um, so that didn't last that long. So by the time I was eight or nine, um, I think that I had mostly stopped with the um, any behaviors of any kind um, that my parents didn't like. But... Um, And I was a pretty compliant kid. Like I, I got into the schools they wanted me to get into. I um, got good grades. Um, the first indication that I had any kind of um, eating disorder was when I was maybe three. Um, I, my father told, used to tell the story that he came in one morning and he saw me climbing up the cabinets to get to the cookies. He said to me, what are you doing? 
And I said, these are for you, Daddy. And that was, um, who knows, who knows what, um, what was happening in my head in that moment. Um, so I noticed that telling my story right now feels, um, a little scary because, um, I guess that whole, that tether is kind of kicking in of like, it's not safe for me to tell the truth. It's not safe for me to say what happened for me. It's not safe for me to cast any kind of negative view on either of my parents. Um, they, as I said, they were very ambitious and they were successful in their ambitions for the most part. And, um, yeah, so it's, it feels scary and painful to do this. Uh, but I think it's also therapeutic for me and hopefully for anyone listening to this, because I do believe that we're only as sick as our secrets and that sharing what is true for me will hopefully resonate for someone else. And also, I'm an adult now. I'm 45. It's safe for me to speak, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So, what I was saying is that um, any indication of issues. Oh, when I was maybe three, also, I there was a little boy on the block, uh, and I had a crush on him, and apparently, um, we were outside. And this is a story my mother tells, and uh, we were outside playing. It was time to go in, and I kissed him on the cheek. And um, I mean, I don't know that I remember him, and I remember having a crush on him. I remember having a lot of like crushes on boys. When I was six, I had my first kiss with a boy. Um, in my mother's hometown and uh, we were playing house and I remember he kissed me with tongue which was like interesting kind of strange um, so those are just I don't know little indicators I always thought that having a boyfriend would make everything better um, I had my first boyfriend when I was 15 when we were living in Paris there was um, a boy who asked me out and we started dating and then we broke, like, my dating history doesn't feel that, um, it feels like the, the issues really came up in adulthood, but let's just keep going. So I got into the school my parents wanted me to get into uh, for college, went to college, met my future husband freshman week of college, um, sophomore year of college, my father died, which was very, very painful. Um, but, oh, here's something. This is, I mean, I guess it's a part of the recovery story, but it's, 
well, it's an essential part of my story, which is that the summer before my father died, no, actually, the the a year before my father died, our house, our second home, a home in the country, burned down. And I started having premonitions of my father's death, but I didn't call them premonitions at the time. I called them um, irrational fears. But I remember telling that my boyfriend at the time, the man who later became my husband, who later became my ex-husband, um, I remember telling him, I'm afraid my father's going to die. And he doesn't remember me saying it, but I remember saying it out loud. It was the first time I'd said it to anyone. And so I just knew that I'd said it. And then when he actually did die and there was no reason for him to die, he was only 50 years old. Um, it sort of opened up like a, a new world to a certain extent for me because I knew that I had known when I shouldn't have known or when, like, according to the way I saw the world at the time, I was more or less an atheist or an agnostic. I didn't think that there was any, I didn't believe in premonitions. I didn't believe in psychic anything. Like, I didn't believe in it. But then I had this experience. And um, on top of having the experience of knowing in advance, I also had the experience of, like, where did he go? Like, what? What? Like, he was just here. <laughs> like, how how does this work? What is, and then what is the point of like he'd made a lot of money before like i said he was very ambitious so what is all this money for if it can't buy you another day of life i remember he paid a faith healer $25,000 to try and heal him and of course it didn't work um but i remember him saying what's $25,000 for a little hope and that's true you know so I wanted to understand, like, why did he die? Where did he go? What is the meaning of all of this? And so it sort of sent me on a search. Um, after college, I broke up with that boyfriend. Um, I applied to law school, which is what was expected of me by my parents. But um, while waiting to hear back, I moved to Miami and I started waiting tables which was, um, honestly, it was a really good experience. It was the first real job that I'd had. Um, and I saw that I could do it. And I saw that I could be responsible. And I, in fact, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> um, it was, it was just a, it was a good experience. It was like, it, had nothing to do with anything my parents wanted me to do, although it did a little bit. My father had been a waiter and his father, his grandfather before him. So there was a way that it felt like I was having that experience that had been formative before both him and his grandfather. But mostly it felt like I was just kind of getting to know who I was and, um, and figuring out what I actually wanted. And by the end of that, I realized I didn't want to go to law school which was like a travesty to my mother, but she accepted it. I asked um, the law school for a deferral and they gave it to me for one year. And in the meantime, I started looking into what I was actually interested in. And it turned out it was the arts. Um, so I started writing, writing poetry, writing that book, like I said, um, doing some acting, some directing, 
And by the end of the year, I, I was I felt confident to tell the school I'm not coming. And instead, I applied to film school and started working on the movie of a friend of mine as the production manager, which is kind of a non-creative job in a creative field. And that was like a safe inroad for me to be next to the creatives, but not actually being a creative. But as I was watching the actors, I noticed that I really loved what they were doing. And, um, and it was like, it felt dangerous almost to say that I wanted to do like, it felt like not possible. Um, even though in college I had been involved in, um, theater as a recreational, like as an extracurricular. And I remember talking with my ex-boyfriend, I guess the one that I later married, um, saying, gosh, you know, I would love to just, you know, wouldn't it be fun to be an actor? And he's like, um, why don't you do it? I'm like, oh, I can't believe you said that. You don't know me at all. Like, that's, you know, you, how dare I got really upset. And he's like, this is ridiculous. Like, if anyone else were talking, you would tell them to, to go for it, to follow their dream. Like, I'm like, oh, you don't understand me. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> and then I called him back like a day later. And I was like, you're right. I'm going to apply. <laughs> so anyway, um, I did apply. And then something else happened. I applied, actually, I think at that time, the safest thing, oh, that's right. The safest thing though was to apply to be a director, not an actor. Like, because one time I had said, when I was in college, when my father was still alive, like, this is how strong their hold was on me. I think I said I was interested in acting. And my father was like, an actor? You could be a director. You could be a producer. You could own the theater. And, like, I don't want to own a theater. Like, I just want to be an actor. Like, why isn't that enough? But um, I had an uncle who was an actor, and he was kind of like the black sheep of the family to a certain – or just – it was not a profession that was honored in our family. Being a lawyer, being a doctor, being in business, those were honorable professions. Like, acting is, like, not. So that was – so when I was – the, the the only way that I could let myself into the creative side was to be a director. But that, so I got, got into two excellent film schools and then um, got, started working on a movie and realized I didn't want to be a director. I wanted to be an actor. And so I called up the film school and said, you know what, I'm not coming two weeks before the deadline. And they were mad, which is kind of, I mean, I, I it felt like I was crashing into things a little bit, but my grandmother said, you know, you gave somebody else a chance. You gave someone on the wait list a chance of a lifetime because you dropped out. And I was like, okay, Grandpa, I'll believe you. So I did. And then I applied to theater school. And at that point, I got back together with the boyfriend who, oh, I remember what he said. He said, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to be sitting there clinking with like, you know, Jack Daniels in your glass with the ice cubes. Like I could have been somebody like that was his idea of what it would be like if I hadn't pursued my true interest. But here I am 20 something years later and not clinking. Um, so he and I got married and um, moved in together 
and I started taking acting class and auditioning, and it was really great. But then he had this idea that he wanted to travel around the world. And um, I, oh, actually, that's another part of the story. So while we were in college, um, he was like a college drinker. Like, you know, I didn't really party with him because I didn't drink at all in college. Um, But one night he um, got really drunk and fell off of something or uh, I can't remember what happened, but his friend called me and told me that he was in the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and it was and he was being belligerent like he they had to handcuff him to a bed, which was very upsetting to see. And so I busted in. I think I tried to I wanted to save him or something. And I got ad boarded for it. Like um, I was put on disciplinary action. This was my senior year. And um, and it, it worked out like I didn't I was able to graduate. And but I think it was the first indicator that he may have some issue with alcohol um, and substances. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think that we would stay together anyway. We broke up right after. And so I kind of put it out of my mind, but when we got back together around when I had decided to become, um, an actor, um, or when he proposed, my mother said, think about what his worst fault is. And if you can live with that, then, you know, marry him. And his father was a sober alcoholic. And I thought, well, I guess his worst fault is that he could become an alcoholic. Well, and I and I thought, you know, I I can live with that. I I didn't really know what that meant, um, or I thought I didn't. Um, but anyway, so that's just the groundwork. Um, so later, after we got married, we, he wanted to travel around the world. Um, we did travel around the world, um, which was amazing. But there was a way that I had wanted to stay and like just focus on my career. But but I think it's funny, even talking about it right now, I'm not sure that I have like a lot of distance around it. Um, but I think that I was like really kind of, or not, I think I was codependent. Like it was like, do what the man says. And so... I followed him around the world and it's not like he was asking me to hell, you know, I mean, it was pretty amazing. We went to Tibet and um, Tanzania and like, it was cool. Um, But during that time, um, I got more of a sense that he might have an issue with alcohol and drugs. And I I think at that point it was just alcohol, but I started in Al-Anon when we got back to the States. We were both in graduate school um, out West and I started with Al-Anon. I remember that um, there was one night where he came home and was drunk. And when I woke up, like the refrigerator door was open and there were cherries all over the floor. And this is the kind of like, he was a very tidy guy. And so it was like the first indicator in our married life that there was an issue. So I knew someone in my program who was in AA and I said to him, 
I think my husband has a problem. And he says, you're sick too. And I'm like, what? What do you mean I'm sick too? He's the one with the problem. Cherry's all over the floor. And, uh, you know, he asked if he could give my name to two people in, in Al-Anon. And I said, yes. And he gave me the name of two people in my program, like two, I mean, my acting program, meaning like, you know, the, the, the whole 12 step world is such like an underground secret society in the best possible way. Meaning that like, you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to whatever is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend is that there's a desire to stop drinking is that there's a desire to heal from an eating disorder is that there's a desire to stop acting out patterns of sex and love addiction like that's it and so once we surrender and say yeah i have a problem we're welcomed with open arms you know the 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 pledge of when anyone anywhere reaches out for help let the hand of alanon alatine or that's the one that i remember be there and let it begin with me. So the names of these two people who I knew, I had no idea that this was an issue in their lives. And, um, and they, one especially really helped me. Like just, I just felt less alone. So I got a sponsor in Al-Anon and, um, started working the steps and it was amazing. Like it was, I remember step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, she had me figure out what is my concept of a higher power, a power greater than myself, and then start interviewing other people on like what their concept of a higher power was. So I had a therapist at the time and I asked her, um, What's your idea of a higher power? And she said, um, that feeling of coming home, of like when you open the door and, you know, take off your shoes and loosen your clothes or put on something more comfortable and have something nice to eat and cold, something cold to drink and you just feel relaxed and at home. It's that feeling times a million. That's a higher power. And that was such like a broad, roomy, and inclusive concept of of God. And it really changed something for me to to work the step in that way. And then step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood God. That one was a good one too. Like, okay, I'm just going to trust that everything's going to work out. So, um, things with my ex, with uh, now my ex, but then my husband were starting to get more intense and I did an intervention. He got into recovery. He got, he went, he, um, relapsed into recovery. We moved to Florida. Um, I started acting in Florida. I did really well. I started acting in New York, like flying back and forth. And then at one point, like I had this fantastic experience in New York as an actor. And and I started to feel, though, like it was meaningless, meaning like I had this really great debut and lots of press and and like I was all dressed up and like makeup artist and hair and, you know, just the whole shebang. And it kind of felt silly. 
I was playing the role of um, another actress and it sort of felt like she was telling me like, this doesn't have, it's what you're looking for isn't here. Now that I'm looking at it, there's also a way that I think that I was holding myself back. I, I don't know, whatever it was, it's like I touched success and it scared me. Anyway, soon after that, I felt like I was ready to have kids and we did. We had two children. We adopted our kids. It was something that was important to my uh, ex-husband. His father had been adopted. And uh, the moment that they put my daughter in my arms and my son in his arms was the best moment of my life. And there's a way that having kids is like, it's like a redo, like a do-over, because you really see that they are like clean slates, like they are total tabula rasa, like there's nothing written on them. And so I get to decide which of the programming that I receive do I want to recreate with them. And so obviously I was not going to recreate the you're bad concept, like no. And, um, and just, I did a lot of work around what, um, what does it mean to parent? And it was just before then that I found the work of, um, Abraham Hicks, which is, um, like a spiritual philosophy. It's very woo woo. And this is part of the, I guess the, um, that psychic thing that I found when my dad died, I became open to less than conventional method, less than conventional sources of information. And so Abraham Hicks is channeled material. And, um, I asked them, they, they do workshops. They channel through this woman named, um, Esther Hicks. So even as I say that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that, that, um, that kind of receiving of information may feel, or I'm, I'm becoming, I'm aware of like how this might be received by whoever's listening. And what I would say is, you know, just if it's, if it feels like it's interesting to you, check it out. If not, just like what it's, it's your, believe whatever you want. I believe it. Um, so this woman, Esther Hicks, um, I, I've asked that I asked them many, many questions about kids and, um, and it really helped a lot. Anyway, meanwhile, um, things were fun for a while with my, like, we're okay while he was sober, he was sober, sober, sober. And then, um, I don't even remember what happened, but we decided to open up our, oh, I know I had been in Overeaters Anonymous for a while, OA, and I got my weight to like, like supermodel level or whatever. Like I was like this, like string bean, you know, very fit, like fit body. And, um, and then after I found the Abraham Hicks, like I, you know, there was so much restriction that I had to do in order to keep my body that way. The Abraham Hicks material is like, you can be, do, or have anything that you want. And, I relaxed with food. I made a conscious decision to start letting myself eat sugar and flour again. And I gained 30 pounds in 30 days. Like it was just before we had the kids. And looking at it now, I think that it was that I couldn't handle my anxiety about becoming a parent without using food. 
Like that's really what happened. But the story that I told myself is I don't want my daughter to see me afraid of a piece of birthday cake. I don't think that's actually what was happening. I really think that it was I needed to self-medicate because I was scared about becoming a parent because I had such you know a difficult relationship with my own parents. But whatever is what happened. I also feel like I felt like I needed to gain weight in order to have kids. So even though we were adopting them, I wanted some change in my body. Who knows? Anyway, um, the change in my body, I had this moment where I'm like, oh, um, if my body changes, then he may not be as attracted to me because I was kind of in that paradigm. And that means that he might stray or like, and so you know what, if he needs to do that, he should do that because I know that I need to do this for myself. And so I had this idea of opening up the marriage. And I remember going to him and saying, I think we should have an open marriage. And he, I remember he was like, what? And then the next day he came back and was like, okay. (laughs) So so we had a year where we just experimented, both of us. And like we had rules like don't ask, don't tell, um, don't know when we know, be safe. And that was fun for a while. But then after a year of that, I met someone um, and um, I felt like, oh, I want to keep him. (laughs) And so I asked my husband is it okay and so and he said yes and so for a while I had a boyfriend and a husband at the same time and it was very interesting but really what that was was I the marriage was over like it was it was a safe way to end the marriage by having this boyfriend because by the time the marriage wound down um the boyfriend relationship wound down too so we got divorced um and I broke up with the boyfriend. And then this is where I started to become aware that I had some issues around like gender stuff because um, I started talking with a man who's in uh, someone I went to college with and I went to visit him. He was in um, at a yoga ashram. It was fun. Um, and whenever he said my name, I'd go like, <gasps> yes like a dog, like, like if he said my name, I felt like I had to jump and I'm like, what is that about? So I started doing some work around, um, around like gender and, and like patriarchy, like I, all of a sudden after, only after getting divorced did I realize that we live in a patriarchy. Like, why is it that children take the name of the father? Like, what does that say? about the contribution of the mother to like that when they're named after their father, like it does. So I didn't even know what I didn't know. Um, part of that work I started studying um, with some other people. I found uh, a woman who, um, who does family constellations work and I'm working with her still today. And some of the once my ex and I were divorced I went through two other very tumultuous relationships with and my kids were like a witness to them and and with this woman I I started to be able to see like okay why do I feel like I have to be partnered like do I feel like I don't have any worth unless I I have a man next to me yes so what's that about (laughs) that that's you know that has to go um not just that but there were also ways that I would act out with food so with food my issues were restricting 
as I said, like I felt like I needed to have my body look like supermodels. In fact, I competed in bikini um, at the national level. Um, yeah, that was something I did. Um, but I couldn't maintain it. Like I, I got the fitness model body with the abs and the butt um, for I could hold on to it for maybe two weeks. And then I'd binge um, and and I had a I would exercise I over exercised. So the way my my eating disorder looked was just periodic binging, periodic restricting, over exercising. Um, it, the official diagnosis is other specified feeding and eating disorder, atypical anorexia, orthorexia. Orthorexia is a new diagnosis, not even in the DSM five yet, but or than the DSM yet, it's um, an overemphasis on eating healthy, eating clean. So anyway, with this family constellations person, I finally got to a point where I realized I want to take care of this eating disorder. Um, and so I went to treatment the first two months of this year. I went away to residential treatment. And that was a really... It felt really extreme because my life was working. And in fact, the eating disorder was in partial remission. But I just, I'm so glad that I went. I'm so glad. I mean, what is all this money for? I asked earlier. Well, it's to pay for the treatment okay, because I needed that time in that center to just sort of get back to the person I was when I was born, like before any thoughts of like, I'm an accessory to these two people, like, who am I? And that's something that I'm still working on today. So today, what it's like, it, what my program looks like is, um, I do 12 step meetings for eating disorder and for sex and love addiction. I am working the steps in both of those programs. Um, even though I completed the steps in Al-Anon and in OA several times, it's different when, you know, you just cycle through. Um, I see the family constellations person and I, um, I am not dating right now. That's a part of my program. Um, I still need to see who I am. Um, I have no restrictions on my food, except I'm a vegetarian. I don't, but that might change. Um, at this point it's still there, but otherwise I like cookies, cake, birthday cake, anything. Um, is um, available for me. I have a dietitian, and this is something that I learned when I did eating disorder treatment. Um, was that like the difference between a nutritionist and a registered dietitian, and a registered dietitian who has an experience with eating disorder? They are worlds apart. Like nutritionist, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist, whereas a registered dietitian who has eating disorder experience is like a total other thing. So, for anyone out there with something around eating disorder, I highly recommend going to someone, a registered dietitian who is, who specifically works with eating disorder. So that has been incredibly healing to look at food in a new way as all food fits. And, um, there are, um, it's just about nutrition, about feeding the body. And so that means a cookie and broccoli like, it's just about their macronutrients. You know, I'm, in fact, actually, even as I'm talking, I'm like, I don't even know. I just do what she tells me. And what she I do, what I do now is I eat according to full hunger fullness cues. And I 
um, eat according to preference, which means that if I want to eat something, I let myself have it. Like I let myself eat it. And that's something that I really did not used to do. And the, the diagnosis of um, atypical anorexia was that my weight was not below normal. Like even when I was restricting at my most, um, at like my most restrictive, like when I'm about to get on stage, it was still a healthy weight according to whatever standard uh, for my height. Anyway, um, the eating disorder, it actually feels amazing right now. It feels like it is in remission. It feels like I am, I am close to recovered because just the other day, um, something happened with my kids um, that was very upsetting. They, should I even go into this? Maybe. My son tried vaping. And, um, that like totally knocked me on my ass. He's 13, almost 13. And I just started having all these fear thoughts around like, it's going to be just like his dad. And this is a gateway drug. And, you know, and he was using the nicotine, whatever it was where I'm working on it. Like I'm on it, but, um, it was very upsetting and I was having strong urges to use food to deal with, like to binge. And I was able to say, oh, I'm really upset. That's because this is really upsetting, but food is not going to help this. And I was able to just self-soothe and reach out for help and go to bed. And that feels like completely miraculous. And um, so that's that one is in remission. Um and the way I'd like to close here uh, is to say um, a quote that I use a lot, like it's from Abraham Hicks, um, that just reminds me of what my center is, and it's this. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. It only matters what you think. And if you're willing to let them think whatever they want to think about anything, even about you, then you will be able to hold your thoughts steady with who you really are. And in time, you will feel good no matter what. Thank you for listening to my qualified. <laughs>